with the decline of religion, the question then becomes, well, what replaces it? And I think there are some good things that have replaced it. But then I think there are other forces, Ricky, that I worry about. And I think part of the reason potentially why our politics are so polarized is because people are trying to find meaning out, like new meaning. And they're, they're creating clans around their politics, but like we're losing community in so many different ways. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, let's welcome young Joe back to the show. Joe, you'll be researching and fact-checking us today. Welcome back. Thank you, guys. Well, I have a question for the two of you. So, Ricky, Joe is an aspiring comedian. He has a big show, from what I understand, coming up Thursday, right in my neighborhood here in New York. I'm back, by Mm -hmm. the way. So if you hear, you know, dogs purring, cats barking, honking horns, police sirens, you know I'm back in New York, so I apologize. I didn't walk the three blocks to the studio. But I have a question for you guys. So, Joe, how do you feel about the fact that Ricky, not being a comedian herself, had a bigger crowd, from what I understand, at the Comedy Cellar than you've had? Sold-out show, man. Sold-out show. How do you feel about Uh, that? Yeah, I'm I'm impressed. I I wouldn't doubt her. I I couldn't (laughs) fill three seats at the Comedy Cellar. No, that's not right. That's not right. Well, do you want to just on the front end tell our listeners where they can see you? Uh, on Thursday, yeah, I am. Uh, pr- I'm actually performing at your favorite coffee shop, Robbie. Which one is at that? Stone Street Cafe. Oh, nice! I do love that place. Yeah, yeah, on Broom Street in Olita. That's why you have no excuse not to come. I, I will stop by, uh, assuming I get my schedule right. It's a, it's a bit of a packed week, but you know, I want to I want to see it. I haven't seen you yet in action, so that's exciting. Uh, I want to shout out. We have a Citizen Stewart episode coming out today. This is our education podcast. This is a spicy one. We talk about Andrew Tate and the growth of uh, educators just being alarmed, especially in the UK, about kids sharing Andrew Tate commentary uh, and how like schools are having to adjust to that. And if you don't know who Andrew Tate is, that's going to be a fascinating episode. We also talk about this bizarre show called The Parent Test, where apparently they pit parents with different parenting styles against each other, free range, strict, et cetera. And so we talk about the ethics of that and basically rank order our favorite uh, parenting styles. And so that's the Citizen Stewart podcast. Uh, Ricky, shall we, pl- shall we plug the voicemail? I, I hesitate to do so, but yeah, let's do let's it. Let's do it. Um, so if you have any thoughts, shoot us a voicemail, 321-200-0570. Or alternatively, if you do not want to put your voice to a voicemail, then you can let us know on Twitter. Um, You can help us out with stories. We're doing some calls to action there. And you can give us some feedback, some input before the show, and um, maybe we'll read your comment. All right. Well, this is Trendy Tuesday. I'm not going to do our typical rundown. Essentially, what we're going to do today is we're going to take five trends that are upending American society, and we're going to discuss each one throughout this episode. And we're going to start with cars and the fact that people are just driving less generally, especially our young people. Joe, you want to layer in a few stats for us here just to paint the picture about what's going on? Yeah, sure thing. So in 1997, 43% of 16-year-olds and 62% of 17-year-olds had driver's license. In 2020, those numbers had fallen to 25% and 45% respectively. So just fewer people driving Uh, And this is not just an American phenomenon, although Americans do drive more than other people. So, for example, we drive two times 
the amount that French people drive, for example. Uh, these trends are also happening all over the world, where people just lately, you know, past few years especially, have been driving less. Ricky, what do you what do you make of this? What's driving this? I mean, I think the biggest thing generationally is I think there's an erosion in this idea that this is some sort of rite of passage that you get your driver's license and it's like your ticket to the rest of the world. In my view, I, I didn't really see that in my cohort growing up. It wasn't really something that we all eagerly looked forward to. I knew a lot of people who waited for months or years after they were eligible to get their license. And I would also just say like your ticket to the rest of the world for better or for worse, I would say for worse is in your pocket now with yeah. cell phones and the internet. And, you know, there's there's less incentive. You don't need to go out to meet someone. You don't need to go out to socialize. And so right. we're all just sitting around at home or asking our moms for rides. Also Uber as well. For sure. For sure. But let's let's focus in on that internet point first. Because yeah. what what's startling to me is the stat of one in five Americans 20 to 24 don't have a license. That was just 12% in 1983, which is the year that I was born. Yeah. This, the sense of the internet. So let me just explain to you the, the car situation when I was a kid. So in New York City, uh, you can get a license at 16 or 17, a fact that I'll come back to later on. But a car was a tool of personal liberation when you were a kid. You get a car and you can escape whatever is going on and you could explore the world. And in my neighborhood, most of us had really bad home lives. And so the idea of getting a car was such an important step. And it seems mm -hmm. like now, like part of what you're saying is you can kind of escape in your own way using the internet. And so obviously that's a huge factor here. Uh, Uber yeah. ride shares, the cost in America, the average cost of owning a vehicle and driving um, 15,000 miles in it rose 11% in 2022 to nearly $11,000. Car companies aren't making as many entry level options. Uh, teens are also much less likely to get summer jobs. There's a Brookings report mm -hmm. on this that we'll link to in the show notes. There's also speculation about climate change activism, like bottom up activism. And of course, Ricky, your wheelhouse, over-parenting. Do you think that's a factor? I I don't really think so, to be honest. I know that some people say that it's because, you know, we have trackers in our phones and our parents don't want us to go anywhere if we're unsafe. But I do feel like, if anything, I've I felt the reverse where my my friends' parents and were kind of like, get out, go. Like right. this was our rite of passage. You should have it too. And we were the ones that were sort of like, yeah, I don't really know if it's that important to me. Um, and if you look at the statistics of polling of young people um, who don't have licenses, the most popular reasons are that they're, it, they're too busy, that it's too expensive, that they get transportation from other people, that they prefer to walk or bike. Like the environmental concern is like 9%. It's way at the bottom of that stack. Um, so I would say I don't, I'm not convinced that it's parenting as much as just our own, um, comfort at home, our own comfort on social media. I I'll admit I'll out myself as much as I make fun of my generation all the time. I'm such an anxious driver. I'm like crippled by mm. anxiety every time I get behind a wheel, which is very Gen Z of me. My mom gets so mad that I have a license <laughs> and every time we're in a car together, I'm always the passenger cause I'm very stressed by the entire experience. So maybe, the, I don't know, like it just, <laughs> That I think it's I think it's us. I really don't think it's the external forces as much as it might seem. 
Yeah, I think I was blessed when I was a kid. I was a pizza delivery guy on Staten Island before the age of GPS. And so I feel mm -hmm. like that sort of ironed out my anxieties. I'm still, I would still say I'm a slow driver, but but here's a story and, and, and our producer may may cut this, Michael, but the when I was a kid in New York City, Basically, New York is a big place, and the rules are different upstate as they are in New York, but you have one licensing authority. So there are essentially two driver's licenses you can get as a kid, one that you can get when you're 16 and one you can get when you're 17. But when you pass your driver's test when you're 16, as I did, and you live in New York City, it's functionally useless. It's called a DJ license, and then a D license is what everybody else gets. So I passed my driver's test when I'm 16, and I have this idea that I'm going to send to my house a fake letter from the motor vehicle department with fake rules around what it means to have a DJ license that were like, oh, you could drive until 10 p.m. and as long as it's not raining really hard, whatever. So I, I sent this and I I just had it like come in the mail and my mom opened it and read it and she was like, oh, you could drive. So I was the first guy in my high school class to drive because I sent a thing to my house with fake rules around the DJ license. And I only told my mom this a couple years ago and she was very upset, she almost smacked me. but. That's Bobby, my driver's You keep story. incriminating yourself on this podcast. You're like impersonating a government employee. <laughs> I was a kid. I was 16. For those of you who got okay. mad at me over the Azepic thing, save your voicemails. I was a 16-year-old kid, and I'm not and I'm not mm -hmm. advising this now. But it's just okay. a story about how important it was to get a driver's license when you're a kid. And so Yeah, I don't know. It just wasn't really my experience. Well, obviously, just one last thing to say here is that government policy also plays a role. And so uh, in Britain, many local councils have begun uh, introducing low traffic neighborhoods. Uh, in Oslo, they've finished removing all on-street parking spaces from the city center in 2020. In New York City, we passed congestion pricing, which is very controversial and hasn't been implemented. A lot of my, my people out in Staten Island were really upset about that. Uh, and they're all cities from Minneapolis to Boston that have removed rules that compel property developers to provide a certain amount of free parking in their buildings, something that we've talked about in a couple of interviews on housing. So there's actually a lot of policy that's driving this too. And it's, it's hard right now to disentangle those, but, but one thing for, for sure is certain is that Fewer people are going to be on the road, especially as you see Gen Z age into driving and then you see the boomers, you know, fade out and drive less. Okay, let's move on to our second trend here, which is a decline in religious faith in America. Um, as of 2020, 64% of the country identified as Christian, and 30% were in the category of religious nuns, as they're called, which could include being spiritual, being atheist, but not affiliating officially um, with a religion. And by 2070, we're set to um, have more nuns than sums in the country. And so... Um, I, I, this is a, a staggering statistic that continues to go up and up and up. So what do you right. make of it? Well, there's, there's some counterintuitive parts of this. So since 2017, this decline has been true of all political groups, though most pronounced among Democrats. It's declined mm -hmm. in every region of the country, but mostly in the, it's more pronounced in the Midwest and South. It's declined in rural, suburban, and urban communities, but more in rural. And religious membership decline is more pronounced among members without a college degree. So in some sense, this is the opposite of what I would have expected in terms of like where this is coming from. And you know, Derek Thompson over at The Atlantic has a theory, and I want to get your your reaction to this theory, Ricky. He 
he ascribes this to three causes. One is the association of the Republican Party with the Christian right. Two is the end of the Cold War. And three is 9-11. So, and, you know, these are three trends that I think a lot of them played out before you were born, but obviously you've lived with the consequences. Uh, and you basically came up in the 9-11 world. Do you buy any of these theories? I, I can see the the political tinge or the political association of religion with a certain political party, which is just more and more the case. I don't know if that's the party following the base or the base following the party. It's hard for me to parse that out. I certainly don't think that I'm able to comment on the Cold War effects on religion. It's just so far out of my wheelhouse chronologically. But And even 9-11, I'm not really convinced that that was a crisis of faith for us necessarily. I think there's... There's just doubt in institutions. There's there's more scientific knowledge, people kind of questioning the God in the gaps sort of theory. Um, and just, I, I think it's just more of a natural social progression. I, mm -hmm. you see, a, I mean, 9-11 was a uniquely American experience and you're seeing similar declines in religion and other parts of the Western world. So I'm not, I'm not really convinced that it can be ascribed so neatly. I think it's just a way more complex shift away from, from these sorts of values that's been gradually happening for decades now. Yeah, and let me at least give a rationale for each of these three before we move on from his theory. So, you know, the association with the Republican Party with religion, that one's pretty obvious, and he basically describes the sort of liberal movement away from religion as being in part caused by that. I think that one's pretty straightforward. The end of the Cold War, so this one may not be intuitive, but you know, the Soviet Union was a sort of godless state. And so the idea that we were going against them, like part of what we were playing up was our religion. Uh, and then the 9-11 one, I wasn't sure what he was getting at at first, but what he was saying is, you know, this, the the sort of, the, the kind of terrorism we we're dealing with was a religious fundamentalism. And what you're saying around like the decline globally in the Western world, that still could be the case because like a lot of our allies, you know, if you think about Germany, UK, et cetera, that have been in the same fight against global terrorism, basically had the same the same factors playing out. And in some cases have even more thorny domestic politics around this given their immigration debates. So you could still ascribe that, I think, to the same same trend, no? I guess so. I, I'm really particularly unconvinced with the Cold War thing though, because I've I mean, people have been religious up until the Cold War. It's not like it all of a sudden spiked through the ceiling. And why would the result of the end of the Cold War be to emulate the godless state then? I, yeah. I just don't really, that doesn't make sense to me, honestly. I think it's just a gradual shift away. I mean, you generationally, I mean, I wear my cross every day and I'm, I'm actually going to church on Sunday with my friend. She asked me to go, which is new for me. I haven't been for a while. My mom's very excited, but like there is a, you can see even in my own family, like generation to generation, just like a little less rigid or a little less routine in their, in the way that they approach religion. And I, I do think that's kind of just a natural cultural shift that we've had recently. And and people finding community in different ways, which unfortunately I think for my generation takes the form of social media. I do think like more in-person community and potentially faith oriented, but also not faith oriented outlets would be healthier. But I, I mean, I just think it's, that's too much of a cause and effect sort of analysis for me, right. to be honest. Well, there's an interesting piece that gets at some of the things you're saying, Ricky, from Wendy Cadge and Alain Babchuk from the Atlantic, and they basically talk about how we typically measure religiosity 
but with butts, budgets, and buildings, meaning like, are people attending churches? Are the churches healthy financially? And are we put, building more churches, right? Those numbers are down by and large. And the Pew data obviously is also down, you know, people just affiliate, like describing themselves as religious. But what they say is they basically do, they do a great job of outlining, like, what's the purpose of religion? And this is what they say. I'm going to, I'm going to read this paragraph for you. So they say, quote, Religion has historically done four main jobs. First, it provides a framework for meaning making, whether helping our ancient ancestors explain why it rained when it rained or helping us today make sense of why bad things happen to good people. Second, religion offers rituals that enable us to mark time, process loss and celebrate joys from births to coming of age to family formation to death. Third, it creates and supports communities, allowing each of us to find a place of belonging. And finally, fueled by each of the first three, religion inspires us to take prophetic action to partaking building a world that is more just, more kind and more loving. And so essentially what they say is like, there's still other ways that we're accomplishing each of those four goals, even if it's not necessarily walking into a building and sitting down in a church. I would say that there's maybe not everyone is accomplishing those goals. Um, there's some pretty interesting mental health correlations between religious stance and your your emotional well-being. Um, people who are religious tend to be have lower rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, self-harm, substance abuse, um, and you know that could be ascribed to having a better sense of community, a sense of purpose. I mean, whether or not you agree with them, certainly they they have a conviction about that or a set of moral codes. But this is there's a really interesting wrinkle in this data where people who are atheists, like if you look at the people under the religious nuns umbrella, the people who are atheists who are sure that there is nothing tend to be better off mentally than the people who are spiritual but not religious and in the kind of in-between. Um, those people tend to have more um, dr issues with drugs, eating disorders, anxiety, neuroticism, mental um, health medications. Um, and so it's an interesting theory that I, I, I this is very speculative, obviously, but that there could be something to having a certainty of your belief that's mm -hmm. just comforting to people, even if it's a belief in nothing, which is, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. I was, cause I, I was, I had a hunch that the people who are, who have faith might be a little more comforted in that and potentially less caught up in the depression and anxiety trends that we have today. But um, it's interesting yeah. to see that there's certainly differentials within people who are not religiously affiliated. Well, yeah, you know, I grew up Catholic and, and I think, and I've progressed to now becoming agnostic and I would say, I guess like major life events, like losing my grandfather or losing a lot of friends, like those are harder to process when you don't have that religious framework. Yeah. And, and I, that totally. definitely can make you despondent. Uh, what, what those authors of that Atlantic piece posit is this is how they kind of frame the question they say. So rather than asking how many people went to church last Sunday morning, we should ask, where are Americans finding meaning in their lives? Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting question. I think with the decline of religion, the question then becomes, well, what replaces it? And I think there's some good things that have replaced it. And I'm not saying these are better than religion, but I think they are positives in people's life. Like a good example is when I was in California, I was attending this CrossFit gym in this, this small California town. And everybody knows each other. Everybody's really friendly with each other. You could see people finding community, building community. There's a lot of articles written about how you know CrossFit is a new religion, et cetera. And obviously a lot of those same people who attend CrossFit on a Saturday are gonna attend church on a Sunday. So it's not mutually exclusive. But so there are those positive you know, forces in mm -hmm. people's lives. But then I think there are other forces, Ricky, that I worry about. And I think part of the reason 
potentially why our politics are so polarized yeah. is because people are trying to find meaning out like new meaning and they're they're creating clans around their politics that otherwise you know were part of their religion or part of their you know we'll talk about the family in a second but like yeah. we're losing community in so many different ways yeah definitely i i mean i think there's definitely a subset of people who treat their political vantage point as as like a a a moral code or like a like a religious faith in a sense and i think that's true on both sides of the spectrum um but it's definitely concerning one last kind of silly anecdote but i always find it funny no offense to my friends if they're listening and they fall into this category but how many of my friends are so staunchly atheist but also are so into astrology and are <laughs> oh have no God. problem believing that the star and the sun and the moon and all these all these um very woo woo things have a big effect on your personality but that there's no way that there's anything greater out there aside from that Interesting to me. <laughs> do you have a lot of astrology friends? All, all my I astrology do. people are, are my friends in Costa Rica. I would say, but none 99%. of my astrology people are religious. It's the not religious friends that all happen to be the astrology people too. Mm -hmm. So I don't yeah. know what that. Well, it's, it's it's that replacement effect, right? You, yeah, you, but you, you have to find some that's way what you're going to replace it with. Is like a horoscope. I don't know. Well, that's I, I, not purpose giving. I would say this in in not necessarily in defense of the astrology people, but but. Uh, a sense of sympathy for them is that I have struggled. I grew up in a very Catholic community. It was it was the the glue of my community. CYO basketball on Friday nights, church on Sundays. My mom is still in the leadership of her church. The routine, the community, the sense of meaning mm -hmm. when hardship happens, and I don't I have, I don't think I've replaced it with enough. Like there's definitely been this void in my life since I have not only left the faith in the strict sense, but also the community around that. And it's something I think about every day. So I, although I'm not a believer in astrology, I sympathize with people trying to find meaning. You want to come to church on Sunday? You know, uh, <laughs> I think I'm busy, but you know, I'm sure you are. The only person um, I go to church with is my mom. Uh, she 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 will make me go. Um, my mom is thrilled that I'm going on Sunday, so now <laughs> I've committed. It's in the the podcast stone. Well, shall we talk about some changing family structures here as well? Yes. Uh, well, let me lay this out. So, multi generational living, which we'll just classify as you know younger adults living with older adults and vice versa is on the rise in America, particularly older Americans, uh, older Americans moving in with their younger children. Pew Research Center, which shout out to Pew because we're more exciting them a ton today. Awesome organization that does a ton of polling over the years. Uh, the percentage of multi-generational households where the they're, the young person is the head of the household. So the young person is the person who either purchased the house or however we're defining that. That's a number that's tripled in 20 years. And this is a phenomenon that's way more common outside of the West. So my Indian relatives, both inside of the US and in India are more likely to live with each other. My brother lives with uh, the in-laws, for example. And I spent a few summers in college in Ghana uh, and very common there as well. And so, uh, this is interesting. I want to call it a positive. Ricky, do you applaud this trend? I I think it's definitely a lot of different factors at play here. Some more positive, some more negative, like just affordability of having alternatives or people not being able to afford their own home in 
an old age is an unfortunate reality and I think it just only exacerbated by the pandemic. But I do think that there is somewhat of a positive here. If this is something that people are doing by choice or they're just electing to, I, th- I do feel like we've had a cultural awakening about elder care and nursing homes and a lot of the the concerns and the ethics around that and how people are being treated. And I, I do think that that was some sort of an out of sight, out of mind thing culturally that less so today uh, potentially. And so that could be a positive that we're just treating our elders better. Um, Without a doubt. There, it's also, I mean, it's, it's not, even though there are clear financial kind of correlations across the globe. There are just different cultural contexts too. Like I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, the reason that, or one of the reasons why Italy was hit so hard is because they had these multi-generational households. Mm. And so they had elderly people living with younger people bringing COVID back home. And Mm -hmm. that was um, in part spurring the death rates. But that's just an example of a country in Europe that like does have more of a cultural context around living with grandparents and and staying together. But then there's also like Estonia and Finland are the two lowest rates of um, multi-generational households at all uh, as well. So it's a little all over the place, but certainly correlated by, I would say, um, the the financial health of a nation. Yeah, let me put some data to that. So nearly four in 10 adults around the world live with extended family. That's only 6% in the US. So basically yeah. 40% versus 6%. And uh, the US is in the bottom quartile in proportion of population 65 or older living alone as of 2019. We're not at the way bottom. So the Scandinavian countries, as you mentioned, are at the way bottom. Latin American countries do particularly well. So Panama is number one, Costa Rica, number two, shout out to them. And you get at something really important, Ricky. And I think I've talked to you about this before. Like my mom is a nurse in nursing homes and she's always been a nurse in nursing homes since I was a kid with a Mm -hmm. brief stint um, on an AIDS ward um, when I was a kid. She, I, and so I used to sometimes visit her in the nursing home because she would work double shifts. And so after school, sometimes I would take the bus over to see her and the, I would just sit there and kind of watch as this plays out, like, you know, the, the you know elder people getting older and older and older. Yeah. And although there are family members that were really great at visiting their family. And so if that's you and you're listening, I, this is not a criticism of you. There were a lot of people who dropped their grandparents or parents off at the nursing home and kind of that was it. Like there are yeah. people I would talk to who hadn't heard from relatives in over a year and they're really depressed. The models are, are you know, hadn't innovated. I'm, I'm, you're starting to see more innovation now. There's a really good book from a few years ago called uh, How to Live Forever that talks about innovation in their nursing home space. But it's something we just don't get right. And it's something like on, you know, in my life list of things that I want to work on at some point, it's like creating new more communal, positive models of nursing homes because we just don't have enough positive, happy places for people who can't live at home with their children. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I, I, when I had to do community service in high school, I picked uh, volunteering at nursing homes and just hanging out with old people and talking to them. And it was kind of, it was kindred spirits, I would imagine. Yeah, you and the old people. exactly. Yeah. It's like I have I have an old dad. I, I have a soft spot for <laughs> old people. Um, but it, it was kind of bittersweet because the company was so appreciated in a way that I wasn't really prepared for. And it kind of made me sad um, that they're just. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's a rough feat. But then there, I think another wrinkle here that maybe we can end on a more positive note is that there's I we I do think that we have a trend in our culture right now of. 
um, relying on childcare and hiring outside help. And this actually does have the benefit of having an older parent around um, and getting childcare from somebody who's a relative who loves them, who cares for them, who isn't necessarily getting paid, but that's kind of a more reciprocal relationship potentially. And um, in terms of the people who are in these multi-generational households, um, 25% of them say that they're care, they're, caregiving for the elderly person, but also 12% of them are utilizing this for, um, childcare. So mm-hmm. yeah. this, this is potentially a benefit, especially as like we grapple with the legitimate challenges of women having children and, and working and wanting to balance those competing interests. Um, having a family member that, you know, and trust to watch your child at home could be a really right. great and very natural cultural thing. Yeah. This is definitely a big topic of a conversation among people my age is like, how can you get your in-laws or parents to move in with you? Mm-hmm. And it's it's really a question of privacy versus convenience, right? So the, mm-hmm. the convenience of the childcare versus both, you know, your parents' privacy and yours sometimes could be at risk. I know this from just seeing my brother who sometimes goes a little bit crazy with so many people in his house. I would say the ideal living circumstance, if you could pull it off, is like those accessory del- dwe- dwelling units that we talked about in housing is like, if you can have like a house in your, like a little house in your backyard where the garage was or something like that's what my mom is essentially pitching my my family on i think is she wants to build something behind our house and then like have somebody move into the main house that we grew up in so that's ideal i'll I'll leave you with one point ricky and i want to get your thoughts to this this is david brooks in 2020 in march 2020 right before the 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 pandemic really got pronounced this is what he wrote We've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We move from big interconnected and extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable in society from the shocks of life to smaller detached nuclear families, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger and interconnected extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and poor. Did you buy that? I feel like I don't have enough enough knowledge of the macro trends here to or expertise to take a hard stance on that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'll just say one thing on this. The when I was a kid, my dad left when I was a kid. And that was the nuclear family. So the nu- my nuclear mm-hmm. family fell apart. My mom had to work two jobs. And my extended family per David Brooks's point stepped in. So my uncle Ray who lived in you know in the same neighborhood would come over and fix things and teach me how to do stuff that a dad would typically do and my grandmother uh, for a critical period of time for a year or two let us move into her basement so those are like the extended family ties that he's talking mm-hmm. about the version of that today if i if my brother if something happened to my brother uh, and his kids he lives in North Carolina. I live here. I think people are kind of moving away from each other more and yeah. more and more. There's a lot of data on this. And especially where I grew up in Staten Island, you know, you had multi-generational, many, many decades, in my case, and my mom's side of the family, century plus family tied to the same area, same neighborhood. And that doesn't seem to be true anymore. And that worries me a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely anecdotally true in my family as well. I have four brothers that were all in different states. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my sister's in Denver too, yeah. Doing a complete 180, if I get my geometry correct, Ricky. Uh, I'll never s- let you live down the 90-degree turn. So that one was really good. I'm glad I caught it. <laughs> At least I didn't do the 360. So, uh, big trend. I almost think it's worse. 
Yeah, Anyways, continue. I'm derailing us. I'm derailing Uh, us. We are seeing a precipitous decline in sex among American adults. And this is particularly true of our young people. Uh, Almost 30% of men under 30 report not having had sex once in the past year, a threefold increase since 2008. Uh, Partnership and cohabitation are also down. Uh, And uh, this, we could say this is a trend among young people and single people, but even married people are having sex less. Joe, uh, I don't know if you have a stat on that. Like what's go- what's the married people stat just so we can layer that in? Yeah. So uh, this is from a 2021 general social survey among married couples under the age of 60, 26% had sex once a month or less in 2021. In 1989, it was 12%. Wow. So, and there's a, there's this, this classification called sexless, uh, which is defined as, you know, having no sex at all or fewer than 10 sexual encounters per year. And uh, researchers estimate that somewhere between 10 to 20% of North American marriages are completely sexless. And this is on the, this is on the rise. What's going on here? Oh, I feel like a function of that might just be that people are living longer and in marriages for longer than they might have been before. So, you know, things tend to fizzle out. That could be a part of it. But it's certainly on the rise among young people um, in a way that I'm sure the pandemic is only going to exacerbate these statistics. We some of these statistics are pre-pandemic still. And I imagine that the the rates of people actually having intimate relationships is even lower than it was just a couple of years ago. But I would say a huge factor here in my mind is a segment that we've already done, which is availability of porn, to be honest. Like I, there's, there's a low effort substitute that people are turning to. Um, There's also the issue of dating apps potentially could be playing a role in this too, because there's, there's some interesting t- statistics where it's like the top 5% of men yeah, let me read this are too. actually, yeah, go for it. This is actually insane. Uh, sorry. I, I don't know if you're going to so read that. Unsurprising. Go no, it. go for it. You go uh, for it. So this is the national survey of family growth. Uh, as of 2002, the most sexually active top 5% of American heterosexual men had 38 lifetime partners. So that was 2002. By 2012, that number had become 50. Now, that was 2012. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen the updated data, and that could be higher than 50. So one person writing about this talk, talked about how the 5%, top 5% of males is are having half of the sex in the world, and this is not a trend that's true of women. Yeah. That's crazy, and it's fashionable now to talk about the Gini coefficient. This Scott Galloway did that, and and this author also did that, the person who is interacting with this data, saying that like if you know dating apps were a, their own country, we'd be like among the most unequal countries in the world, like akin to like South Africa or something. That yeah. is troubling. You never want yeah, that kind of inequality. Entirely unsurprising to me, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it this... I'm working on an article right now about incels. And one of the things that they talk about is hypergamy, which is like this term that's used to describe a situation in which someone like is in a relationship with, or has sex with someone of a higher social stature or of like a higher desirability. And when you look at these statistics, I mean, I, I think that this is painting with a broad brush. And I, I know this is a lot of generalizations, but there, t- there is a tendency of men to just be more open to casual sexual relationships and less selective and women to be more picky and choosy. And so thanks to dating apps, because people aren't coupling up in this organic way and they're also engaging in more, 
casual sexual relationships, which means that there yeah. is more variability. There's not pairing up like this. The result is that there are a ton of men at the bottom of the barrel who are just right. dependent on porn and unable to meet people with this new reality. And so it's not surprising to me that we're having less sex. I mean, we also don't even young people don't really even go outside or get off their phones anymore. They don't, you got to get in a car sometimes. To Those people are sex, getting, so. yeah. And, and that, that sort of bottom, uh, you know, that bottom group is getting radicalized. You know, if yeah. you look at, I mean, there's something genuinely dangerous about young frustrated men. And I think that our society is, is suffering on on account of that. I mean, the incel community is not the most hospitable place that I've been finding myself um, exploring recently, but it's interesting. And I, and I'm sympathetic to some of the legitimate statistical disadvantages that these guys are at and how frustrating that is. Um, but right. yeah, I mean, 30% of men under 30 are not having sex at all. That's huge. Yeah, and there is an evolutionary evolutionary explanation for what you were saying in terms of, and, and I'm not saying I, I know this to be true, but this is what I've heard evolutionary biologists describe in terms of the differences between men and women on average. Obviously, we, nothing's ever, uh, I, you know, there's there, there are variations within sex, obviously. But the, the evolutionary explanation is that the cost of bearing a child is bigger for a woman. Therefore, like the yeah. cost of like a the wrong sexual encounter is more evolutionarily Enormous. costly. And then you layer in like sexual assault and things like that and the prevalence of that. And so you both get nature and nurture involved and, and that could help explain that. Some people have talked about COVID, although these trends predated COVID, they could have been exacerbated by them. Let's go to, uh, there's a, a sexologist named Shan Bujram. Let's hear what she had to say. I think she basically gets at, this is, she basically connects the dots to, to what we were just talking about in terms of societal changes generally and people just being more wired. It's tricky because when we even ask ourselves the question, how much organized social activities are you a part of? So before maybe you had a bridge club and a book club, and maybe you went to the gym and then you bought your own treadmill and then you decided to play online games. And then you decided that, you know what, I'm going to join a Facebook group for book reading instead. And then now these social gathering groups, you have transformed into these online experiences. And that's the same thing that's actually happening with a lot of people's sex drives. They're finding online mediated ways to engage with their sexual selves. And so it kind of becomes a question of, well, why do I need to do the real thing? I mean, the answer, I think is very clear. We need it for our mental health. And as you know, there are crazy benefits to not just orgasm, but to orgasm that is coupled with an intimate experience that you really can't duplicate without skin-to-skin -skin contact. Ricky, you want to give us the play-by-play -play for the, the audio listeners at home? <laughs> the poor host of this show just got a really unfortunate camera pan, right? As she's like, as you know, there are benefits to orgasms with him just creepily smiling and nodding. Mm. But um, yeah. poor guy, I'm sympathetic. They cut to you at the worst times. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I also think there's another factor at play here, to be honest, which is that in the... I. Not saying that Me Too is not a net positive, but in that post Me Too era and with like a heightened awareness of people's discomfort with sexual encounters or ambiguous encounters, I do think that there is, especially among young men, a clear phobia of actually approaching people in person and putting yourself out there and taking the risk. And it's way safer to do it on an app. You don't mm -hmm. have the risk of rejection. You match first. And, you know, I mean, I think that potentially is playing a role as well. 
Yeah, this in, in many ways brings together a couple of segments we did because we did that segment on dating apps as well, which we'll link here. Joe, yeah. I hesitate to, to, to move on without asking you, you know, as somebody who's an expert on not having sex, what do you think here? Like, what's driving this? I'm well, glad I'm not the Gen Zer fielding that question. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. I, yeah. By the way, for I our listeners, I asked say. Joe if I could say that joke. I don't want to think I'm yeah. being mean uh-huh. to yeah. Joe. It's true. No, it's true. No, I, I'd say it's tough. I mean, personally speaking, you know, I, I live with a, a woman who I'm not in a relationship with. So that's, I'd say that's one of my barriers. Explain. And, uh, what do you mean that's a barrier? Just because you, it's well, like it's, a privacy thing, like you bringing somebody home? No, it's it's more so she doesn't like when I bring someone home. I see. Okay. And uh, it's a complicated relationship, but it's, uh, it's, it's. Can you say more? I, 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 I hesitate well, to ask, she, but she might, she might be in the other room, so I don't want to say Having a much. roommate, I understand but, what he's saying. It's not, it's yeah. not, I don't think her gender no, has anything to do Ricky, with it, I was, but. I read something into the complicated nature of that, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> I'm giving him an out. Yeah. I, I, I said something more to the complicated piece, but all right. I'm helping him. Good okay, transition. Let's talk actually. about marriage. Yeah. No, no music, no music for this transition because you know, maybe, maybe there's something brewing over there in Joe's apartment. Marriage. Joe, give us some statistics on marriage. Yeah. So according to the national center for health statistics, the marriage rate in the U.S. fell nearly 27% from 2000 to 2021. That's 8.2 people per 1,000 population to 6 people per 1,000 people. Uh, but interestingly, the marriage rate actually shot up from 2020 to 2021, probably because of the pandemic boost. My sister included mm. had to move the wedding. Mm. So yeah. we could be on a rebound effect, but if you look uh, at the decades of data, we marriage rate has been decreasing since the 70s. Yeah, let me layer in something. I found this history really interesting. So 1930s and 40s, Great Depression, World War II, low point in marriage, people off fighting a war and, you know, and everybody else left here. We're basically going into factories to build shit. Marriage rate doubles between 1932 and 1946. The all-time high is 14.6 marriage rate in 1946. It declines after that, stabilizes in the 50s, starts increasing again in the 60s, declines in the late 70s, increases in the in the early 80s, and mostly declines from then uh, through 2009. Since 2017, it's been on the decline. So quite the roller coaster. Hmm. One thing that's interesting to me here, and I don't know if we really have the long-term data yet to test my theory, but I feel like there's Given that the divorce rate is going up so much as well, I think that's growing up in that context for a lot of younger people who might have either their parents are divorced or their friends' parents. Um, I think that's like a deterrent or like a cautionary tale for them in a way that previous generations didn't have. Um, And my hope would be not that that makes people avoid marriage altogether, but that maybe that renews our kind of faith in the commitment that it's as as much as possible a commitment for life um yeah. if you are going to do it and maybe maybe younger people will start taking this commitment more seriously and do it less frequently because you don't necessarily have to in today's day and age but do it with greater purpose is my kind of optimistic hope here um but it's interesting if you look at the statistics of people who are and aren't married there are some disparate outcomes like they're less likely to be college graduates if they're unmarried they're less likely to be employed they're more financially vulnerable they make on average fourteen thousand dollars less per year and those could be i mean so aren't 
total causation. I mean, there's just correlated factors here, but there are health benefits. You live two years longer on average if you're married, especially with men. And it could potentially um, just having someone else in the household could potentially promote healthy habits. Um, so I don't know. There's there's certainly some benefits here if you look at the the outcomes. Ricky, I want to ask you about your personal experience here because I know your your dad has has been married a few times and you you kind of your parents got divorced. And shout mm-hmm. out to Dick Schlatt, a uh, long time <laughs> sure listener. Love this uh, podcast at this uh, point. All their dirt is out there. <laughs> uh, well, sorry, we could cut that. I thought we no, mentioned okay. that. No, it's okay. Uh, no, it's I fine. It's fine. that. No, it's uh, fine. And so, and my dad has been married four times and the first Mm -hmm. wedding I ever attended were my parents getting married to each other. And, you know, he left shortly after the second marriage. But I think so much of your feeling about marriage is is reflected on the, what model you were given as a kid. So friends I had mm-hmm. whose parents were like in a great marriage or whatever, they like seek it out, they get married early. And people like me who you had a really bad model, like you're kind of stuck with that like image for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. And I think it like when people are like, oh, like marriage is just an unadulterated good. I'm like, well, the one experience I have was horrible and fucked me up for life. So it's like, I think it, it's like, they're, they're just, we're being taught like, hey, the, you pressure, you got to get married, you got to get married, you got to get married. But I think a lot of people are looking around and be like, I just don't know what it looks like for it to be great. I don't, I would have to say growing up in my generational context, there's not that pressure. Like I've never really felt that pressure to be honest. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely treading into theoretical territory here, but I would say, I've noticed a, a trend ar- among younger women closer to my age that I think it, I think it's different for men and women because I do think that you know women if they want to time out their lives and and having children and balancing career like they do have a, a tighter time frame and there's just different realities there. Um, but I would say that I wouldn't be surprised if long term I think there was a millennial kind of pushback of seeing this high divorce rate, seeing a lot of marriages fall apart. I wouldn't be surprised if Gen Z doesn't take a little bit more of a like pendulum swing kind of approach to this stuff a little bit because I I don't know that there's really an awesome I mean we we talked about the childless woman segment too. Mm-hmm. We're kind of going back to everything. I don't know if there's I don't I don't know. I just I I I'm just going to put out a prediction here and maybe it'll age terribly, but I think that Gen Z will have maybe a lower marriage rate and a lower divorce rate. Mm. And that won't be a coincidence. And it might be in part looking up to our millennial counterparts and realizing, well, at least in my view, I think I, I look up to older people that skipped marriage entirely. And I like, to me, that seems like missing something in life that would Mm -hmm. be important to me personally, obviously to each their own. But I I think the pendulum might swing back to maybe hopefully a healthier medium of, of healthier relationships. I don't know. Yeah. I can't remember who it was. It was Bill Maher and somebody talking about this where uh, whoever he was talking to is like happily married or whatever. And Bill Maher is like very staunchly single. Very anti-children, uh, yeah, anti-marriage. And he, it was a really good debate because it's honestly yeah. about what you're looking for in life. Yeah. You know, like, and I think b- different people are hardwired different ways. There's one stat that that you made me think of, Ricky, which is the number of women entering their first marriage between the ages of 40 and 59 has jumped 75% since 1990. And so this is a real trend. Let me read you. I mean, this is kind of, I guess, like my shtick today. Let me read you a take. This is Martha Gill from The Guardian. She says, um, 
we no longer cattle prod people into the institution and bar the doors. Social and financial pressures on singles have lessened. Perhaps this means fewer marriages. Perhaps that isn't a problem. Marriage boosters tend to make the assumption that the institution is an unalloyed social good, but is it? One body of evidence suggests that married people live longer, healthier lives than the rest. Another, that is, that this only applies to happy partnerships. Bad marriages can seriously be detrimental. Frequent conflict, studies suggest, harms your health in all sorts of ways. And so she says, true, some evidence that children benefit from marriage, but this mm -hmm. becomes far muddier when the marriage is a bad one. So I think she's kind of summarizing where we come out of this, which is, it, it all depends on who's doing the marrying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think it might be a cultural kind of Goldilocks moment of like having divorce being an option for, and then something that a lot of people ended up going down that road. I, I think it might just, I'm, I'm going to kind of agree with her and think less marriages, but more purposeful ones might be the, the end result here. Well, I think that's all we got to say in this. So these are five trends. If Please let us know if you like Trendy Tuesday. We'll do it again. But we just wanted to stop and just say, hey, like what's happening in society writ large? And mm -hmm. I think we were a little bit doomsayish on this one. So I think if we do this again, we'll, we'll pick some pos more positive trends, even though some of these I think can be viewed as a positive. So, and, and obviously if you have suggestions on trends you would like us to cover and unpack, and have any takes on it, please send in a voicemail. Ricky, do you have that voicemail number off the top of your head? You're, you're better at remembering this than I. 321-200-0570. Well, I want to thank our listeners. And remember, Lost Debate is a nonprofit organization. It comes to you free of charge. At the moment, we don't even have advertising to waste your time with. So the one thing you could do for us is go on there and leave a positive review wherever you get your podcast and like tweet about it, share the podcast with people in your lives. Uh, we want to thank you for listening. We'll be right back on Thursday. Thank you very much, everybody. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. 